Hi, everyone, and welcome to 50 Now What? I'm your host, Alicia Sutton. Today, I sit down with Kiyomi O'Connor, author of A Sky of Infinite Blue, A Japanese Immigrant Search for Home and Self. In today's episode, Kiyomi graciously shares the emotional challenges from her childhood and family in Japan and her subsequent journey to the United States to find a way to start over for herself. While working as a researcher living out of a tiny apartment in Bethesda, Maryland, she met her future husband, Patrick, a British cancer researcher who was instrumental in holding space for her to begin to heal her generational trauma and what it means to feel loved. Their journey together led to San Diego, California, where the two adopted the practice of Buddhism and a commitment to helping others. Unfortunately, Patrick had his own journey with brain cancer and passed away after a three-year battle in 2016. Kiyomi was able to break through her grief through writing, which led to the incredible A Sky of Infinite Blue, which began to bring meaning back into her life. Kiyomi's story is authentic, raw, and shared in hopes to show that there is always a way to make it to the other side of grief and hard times if you keep digging. Let's jump into it. Hi, Kiyomi. How are you? Good. How are you, Alicia? Uh, It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's good to have you here. And I've been so excited to talk to you. We have so much. You've lived such a dynamic life and had such broad experience. We could go anywhere with this conversation. But before we get started and jump into it, oh, yeah, so much we can talk about. But why don't we start with you telling us about your childhood and growing up in Japan and what that was like in those early childhood experiences and some emotional trauma that impacted you? Yes. I was born and raised in Japan, and I was a middle child, three daughters my parents had. So since my like preschool ages, you know, three and a half years old, my father and then Petano family started to, you know, emotionally abuse, like a verbal abuse. And then that exact same uh, uh, type of uh, abuse was uh, given to my mother. And I was uh, kind of categorized as a mother's child. And my elder sister, she's the eldest. So eldest sister was categorized as a father's child. And then appreciated no matter what she does. And then I was totally like a speck of dust. <laughs> So that uh, treatment lasted a very long time. But uh, at the beginning, I I didn't understand what happened. And then, you know, I thought, oh, maybe accident. Accidentally, they forgot about me or uh, giving a gift a totally different level of uh, quality. And uh, uh, my sister get really fantastic, like a Barbie doll. And I get something like a small and then insignificant. <laughs> so that's uh, every time it repeated and I thought, oh, something must be wrong with me. And then oh, I didn't under- understand why they didn't like me. And then I tried to please them, but a part of me is a kind of a stubborn and I never cried. So probably that upset them too. So they wanted me to suffer, <laughs> but uh, I kind of set up my protective armor, started to wear the uh, protective armor in a very early age. So 
I always pretended I am okay. And then, you know, even they did, they did, you know, pretty harsh, cold treatment. I was like laughing and then I pretended I, I didn't notice anything. So I never cried in front of them. Wow. And I mean, as a child, I mean, that's a lot to carry uh, to build an armor like that at such a young age and to get withdrawn and to not cry. There had to have been some, and you talked about before, some other impacts that that has to have. I mean, even as adults, when you hold things in so long, they start to have even some physical uh, ramifications on you. Did you start to feel that as a child, anxiety and things like that? Yeah. So when I was an elementary student, I was always selected as like a, you know, class president or, you know, I was doing pretty well. I I was very empathetic to uh, the people, like a classmate who are bullied. And I I try to even protect the the victim of bullies. And then they started to bully me back, even including the victim I was protecting. So that kind of experience was really hard on me. And then even I, I was juggling two different phases of my lifestyle, like being wearing armor, and also I was deeply hot. And then so as an elementary student, I go to the school, but, but before going to school, I have a really anxiety attack, and then I have to stop walking to go to school. And then, like, almost a deep breath, and then my stomach was almost coming out of mouth, and then, you know, that experience. I, uh, so I didn't know what's wrong with me or why they, they treat me like this, and then I started to build, like, a shame and a guilt. Instead of... A, uh, blaming other people uh, bad, you know, I couldn't say anything bad, and then I am the one uh, taking up everything inwardly, basically hurting myself by myself. Wow! And it led to growing up with that kind of because, and you talked about this before about having that armor and somehow because you know when you put armor on, it's actually an added weight. You know what I mean? So it, I like that analogy. It's like, yeah, I'm protecting myself, but I'm actually adding more onto you and for and as a young child that's so hard to do and so i can see how it would trigger trigger this kind of basically you had an anxiety attack and you were a child having an anxiety attack holding onto that fence and trying not to throw up as you grew up because how old were you when that started happening you were really young like a school age maybe eight or nine yeah a little girl you're a little girl Abuse itself started even before I went to kindergarten, like a preschool. So like a three and a half to four year old. And then I was very clear already uh, when I was uh, uh, like a uh, first grade, like a six or seven year old at the elementary. I knew I was juggling two different, like a duality of life, like a very bright, uh, you know, bouncing around a good, smart girl. About us, deeply hurt. <laughs> yeah, but deeply hurt. Yeah, just covering it all up. And so in as you grew up, obviously this armor became, is it fair to say it became heavier or became thicker or did it become weaker? Yeah, it, it became thicker and thicker and I didn't know what to do. Like I was trapped in a cage and I know my original personality is more open. And then 
so happy child originally, but unhappy child I have to carry all the time. And then that heaviness was always there in my life. And then my family wasn't really a simple, happy family. My father was a, a professor at the university, and but he has a quite a number of uh, infidelity problems. And then so that uh, shadowed our family dynamics. And then my mother was always keep complaining and crying, and I was a protector and a warrior for my mother. And then in our household, three daughters, I was the only one acting like warrior. <laughs> So uh, the time, uh, yeah, when I became a a teenage, I was already listened to my mother's complaint all the time. And so that made even on top of uh, original uh, childhood emotional abuse, my mother's complaint made even complex uh, PTSD. I was uh, suffering complex uh, PTSD because uh, my mother is one always deciding the same problem every single day. So when I was a teenager, I had a huge argument with my father. Talking back to my father was a totally taboo in our culture. You know, Asian culture, you know, father is the head of a household. And then I am a daughter and a middle daughter. And then talking back and actually argument went really uh, completely uh, separating our family because my father had an affair and then another child outside of their marriage. So I talked, I was the first person to uh, speak out uh, against my father, and, but uh, I took it very deeply to hurt myself, you know, because I had a already habit of uh, Everything became my fault. <laughs> so even talking back, you know, that was pretty uh, normal to do and then should be done. But my mentality and the habit of criticizing myself, you know, become much harder to myself. And do you think this argument with your dad, because it sounds like through your childhood and through your childhood development, this relationship with your father, which... Uh, we'll get into more definitely impacted every other area of your life, especially when it comes to love and in- intimacy and things like that. But this oh, definitely, uh, definitely. Uh, but this final straw, I mean, as a teenager, would you say that is that where some of your armor started? Because you talked about the armor and the barrier at some point eventually starting to crumble or started to wane. Was, is this kind of one of those pivotal points where that armor was starting to try to wear out because you're trying to break out of it. I mean, to take on your dad, which is culturally, and in most cultures, is really for a young woman to take a stand against her father, says a lot about, first of all, who you are as a person in any way. <laughs> I mean, you, you were the warrior right there. How did that change the dynamics? Right. So the argument was originally started uh, to discuss my future career you know, like the choice of university. I wanted to become a journalist. And my my father always long thought that I should become a medical doctor. And then, but somehow the relatives, one of the relatives brought some possibility for, to support one of the, our uh, sisters to become a dentist. 
you know, because, uh, you know, my mother's side of the family has a long uh, family kind of a business being a, a dentist. So somehow a great uncle brought some story. And then it, so eventually that he, you know, we, we had an argument and then the, that shifted. I gave away my career choice to dentistry. So abandoned my own wish and I, I felt I betrayed myself. And all of the stuff brought together to eventually I was suffering so going downward so hard. And eventually I attempted suicide in the early 20s. Wow. And I know you've talked about that very openly. And I, I don't want to talk about that at this point. And that is during that moment just before, I know that you basically were given the option to dentistry or to follow your dream. And at the end of the day, it came down to cost. You know, it was going to come down to who was going to pay for your education. But having relinquished your dream at that point, and you describe it in much detail, those moments leading up to your attempted suicide, there was a moment where you felt like something was stopping you from it. And you described it as basically an attempt that you failed, but there was something else that that stopped you from doing it. What was that moment like to get to that point and go, okay, yeah, this is not going to work. And you pulled yourself because you tried to slit your wrist, correct? Yes, right. So, you know, this trauma, I thought about my father is the really the cause of a problem, but uh, Again, I mentioned about my mother. She was also causing, you know, complex PTSD to me too. So when I was still at the dental school, I was like a state of depression. And my mother, my mother was very selfish in a way. And then she came to my apartment and then I was really like a, a edge of a breaking down. But she didn't see me that way. And she insisted to talk with her and having a tea with her. And then, but I was about to go to the class. And then so I excused. But, and then she was complaining about my behavior to then estrange my father. And then my father said, Kiyomi is dead. <laughs> and then my mother was so, I think she was quite, Stupid, actually. And she delayed that my father's word multiple times, calling me, and then to protect her love and then her, you know, her pride. So she was blind to my own problem, but she just uh, making things much worse. And then she repeated, I'm dead. I'm dead a few times. And then that triggered me. This is it. I, how long I've been protecting my mother for a long, long, long time since my childhood. And then that was a breaking point. I, I really, you know, I couldn't find the value and the meaning of my life at the moment. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And this was because when your mom came to you, it was because you were you were at school at the time and she came to the school to have this conversation with you. And when she OK, when she told you that your father had basically said that, you know, Kiyomi is dead, 
Did you believe that that's something that your father had said? Did you kind of go, yeah, this is what it, it all culminated? You know, at that moment, I wasn't logical enough any longer because I was already taking up all of the duties and responsibilities and then being the warriors. And I was too tired to continue. And then so no matter what they said, what they believe, I was already done. You know, I did so, you know, since three and a half year old to that moment, like a 22 year old, I carried that heavy armor too long time. And I just wanted to let it go. <laughs> so to let it go, you know, because I was like having that duality. And I was a top student, even at the university. And then, you know, to having that totally polarized the life. And then I was totally lonely and empty. So if they still insisted for me to uh, behave, <laughs> you know, I am already done. I have nothing to give. <laughs> you know, that's how I felt. You were empty. You were depleted. And that speaks a lot. When people get to that point, that's usually where they are. It's like they, that's it. There's no place else for you to go. I have a question. Do you think that when we talk about the cultural dynamics growing up in, in Japan, do you think that a lot of that was culturally because of your birth order? Because your younger sister wasn't treated that way. Uh, was it because of the birth order and because you were a and because you were a girl? Oh yes, uh, I'm pretty sure. You know, my elder sister was two years older than me, and the younger one was five years younger. So five years younger is always just a little one, and then you know, very special. But uh, I was very, you know, my age was close to my elder sister, and then I was very capable, capable child. And my elder sister was totally different from me. And she believes she deserves everything at that time. She's already a different person now, but back then, she was always sitting on the throne. You know, she deserved everything. And then I was like a, like a serpent. <laughs> <laughs> the stubborn stepchild, the stubborn... Kiyomi was the warrior. They saw it. She was going to be a problem. How do we stamp this out? But fortunately for you and for the world, actually, your suicide attempt was not a success. And you pulled yourself out of this tub feeling like, okay, I failed this attempt. But yet something else touched you during those moments. You dragged yourself out of that tub. You were going to live at that point. You didn't attempt another suicide. Was that where you think you maybe started to try to heal your trauma? Or was there some other things that, I mean, there are other things that happened after that. Obviously, you, you know, someone, I'll let you tell the story, but someone found out where you were. You're, they found out where you were and they came to, to, they came to find you. And let's talk a little bit about that. Yes. So after totally depleted that, uh, the moment, I was frozen and I, I was shivering and I was frozen. You know, but I couldn't really complete my task, you know, that of uh, suicide. So I felt something was uh, like uh, helping me to live. <laughs> That's uh, like a strange feeling. I mean, like uh, something bigger than me wanted me to live and then see the life in the future. So 
even just coming out of that state took several hours. I couldn't even move or anything like that. But then I thought, what to do? I couldn't continue the way I used to. So I thought, okay, I should go to Nara. Nara is like one hour by train from Kyoto. It's very rusty, very ancient, very primordial. It's a warm feeling. You know, I always enjoy being there in Nara. So I thought I should go to Nara. And then maybe, not now, but someday in the future, I can bring out my courage to do writing, like a journalism or whatever. You know, I just had a little hope that moment. And then uh, I was uh, uh, in Nala, and then I brought my college together to call one of the friends, but she was actually the associate professor at the university at that moment. And but I trusted her as a, one of the best friends, but of course she, she's a professor, and she has a reason to, you know, save my life. <laughs> So, you know, the student, one of the students is about, uh, you know, dying or, or, you know, came from a suicidal attempt. And so she thought probably she needs to be brought back to where I was. So even I, I do think, you know, something else maybe, but it needs to be uh, bring back, not in Nara. So, and then my uh, sister and then them, uh, boyfriend got information from uh, her or the, my father. I don't know exactly what happened, but uh, my father shared that information too. So they uh, drove overnight and then came to the hotel somehow. But I couldn't put myself together. I, I didn't know what's happening. And I, di- I wasn't even sure where what I was because I, I was totally lost and then like a vacant. And then in a, somewhere in Nara, I was uh, uh, staying at the hotel and then like uh, somebody knocked the door. And then like, as I opened, that was my sister, elder sister, and then the my boyfriend. And then at that moment, everything was like a totally shattered again. All of the stress, and then uh, pressure from the suicide or whatever. People probably don't understand how could I, but uh, I felt I was, uh, uh, you know, going back to the uh, captivity. (laughs) That's how I felt. Yeah. Back to the life you were trying to escape by running and escape by trying to commit suicide. Somehow you're pulled back into it. But you managed to make it work. You managed to go back into that life and start uh, living it as if you were. And you ended up with your with your boyfriend and you guys uh, lived together for a period of time. And then uh, eventually married. And ma- married and uh, finished up school. Yeah. But I, I was still as I was, you know, at the time of suicide. I wasn't healed. I was pretending, pretending with a, a little broken armor, but thicker armor, still wearing. So I was basically mentally ill, but uh, I pretended not to. And then, uh, so I still on my life, 
and then living with uh, uh, that boyfriend and then become my first husband. And but uh, uh, I wasn't happy. Mm-hmm. Do you think he knew that you weren't happy or do you think he knew you were happy or did he just feel like he was doing his duty as a husband or at least trying? You know, I think he loved me very much and he knew I was, uh, you know, I attempted suicide. But it, somehow he was holding that fact as a, me as a kind of, you know, captive. captive. <laughs> yeah, he was controlling that, using that fact. I wouldn't go away because uh, he's putting that rope. He had the strings, basically. You were weak and he was and he was holding you there because he knew your he knew your secret, so to speak. He knew your secret that you committed suicide. Yeah. Or try to. He never asked me why or, you know, how I am doing since never, never asked. So that's how our relationship was. I wasn't myself. I wasn't open to the even wound to see how I, I was. And then he didn't share the moment. And I find that amazing that no one would ask, like, what's causing this? What's happening with this? I I find that amazing. And I, and I think that that enables uh, someone who is already in, you were clearly in a despondent mental state. You were just high functioning in a state of mental illness and depression and so many other things. And I think that was just what amazed me that no one even inquired to ask, but you knew that this was happening to yourself. And so after that, though, Things change. And I I always believe that somehow there's always a shift. There's always a place where things are meant to kind of go their separate ways. And so that's what eventually happened with you and your husband. Opportunities came available to him and a completely separate opportunities came available to you. And it caused you to have to make a choice as to what you were going to do with your life. You were forced to really make a hard choice about your life. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So my uh, first husband had an opportunity to become a kind of a professor, you know, like a promoted. And that was a very distant, uh, different university. And then at that time, I told him I wouldn't go. I can't go. So that was a clear, really clearly I knew this marriage is not good. And I have to make a decision at some point. I knew it. And then soon later, I got invitation from NIH, National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, as a working as a postdoctoral uh, researcher there. So that moment, opportunity arrived. And then I had known our marriage was, to me, fake. And then so I have to make a decision to just uh, let it go. So I told him, uh, my, my husband, then I would go. And then he wanted the marriage still keep on going because the original NIH uh, you know, contract was for two years for international research to decide, like two years. So, but somehow in my mind, it's over. And then I didn't think I'm coming back to Japan. I knew. So that's why, to me, it's no sense to keep marriage still ongoing, even, you know, longer separation or, or like a longer distance, you know, separation for another two years or maybe becoming five years or 
it doesn't make sense. I have to draw the line. You drew the line. You knew it was your out. It was your out. You had to go. You had to go. And so you end up in Bethesda, Maryland, in the U.S. A young woman from Japan. You didn't know anybody except you just knew you were going to be working at this place. And you land here. What does it feel like? Did you feel like I'm free or did you feel like, okay, now my life starts? What does it feel like? You know, everything was so new. And then uh, I was totally like a whiteboard, like a blank page. So when I left Japan, you know, the, the time airplane was like ascending. I love that feeling, you know, like ascending. I, I felt uh, all of the pressure gravity over me. And then that departure was the moment that I felt totally, I was totally in tears, full of tears, but also I had a huge hope, like uh, expanding in my heart. And I couldn't stop it. And I didn't know why I was crying. I was crying for the past, but I was crying for the future unknown future I am unfolding. <laughs> so that's how I started. And then when I uh, came to States, of course, uh, my English still, I'm not really a great speaker, but uh, my English was uh, totally, I was uh, much, much shyer, sh shyer than now. So anyhow, everything was so new. And then I have to uh, start everything from scratch. I came to the States with two suitcases, nothing else. But I was hoping, but also I was a little bit afraid, but still I, I had the courage to walk. <laughs> the courage to walk. And so you're on the NIH campus, which is huge. And you're on this campus and you're learning, you're meeting new friends. And you end up at this because you, you were in a small little studio apartment at first that they kind of set up for you. And then, of course, you, you said, and I, I have to mention the book. I know you're not here to sell the book, uh, but I read the book and I would be remiss not to mention A Sky of Infinite Blue. A Japanese immigrant's search for home and self was just phenomenal. And I have to mention it. I can't get away from it because it's so good. But you end up in this little apartment, but you, but you mentioned in your heart you knew you weren't even supposed to stay there that long. You knew that you were going to be leaving there. You were going to be finding someplace else, which landed you to the next phase of your life. Let's talk about that. How you end up leaving that little studio apartment for a place where... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in Bethesda, of yeah. all places. Yes. You know, before I left Japan, I had a conversation with my future supervisor, uh, and then I requested just only for two months, I wanted a, a furnished apartment to just get used to and then just put the feet in a new place. So I had a walking distance, like a 20 minutes walk, studio apartment, and then furnished. And then so with the two suitcases, and then I started life. But I, I hoped, uh, even at that time, Two months of contract after the, uh, the lease is over, I am starting the new life with uh, American people, sharing with American. That's how I, I hoped. So even like uh, just a passing, I, I came to the States February 1990. So it was already winter, in the middle of winter. 
I started to walk around and then finding the, another candidate to share the house or apartment or whatever. And so I walk around the 22 candidate from Fogarty's, uh, you know, recommendation. Fogarty is the one that uh, the NIH has a, a international uh, researcher to help, you know, lots of uh, domestic stuff, uh, how home-related stuff. So one of them, uh, uh, housing. So I got uh, like a 22 housing examples and then and visited, and, and but the, none of them I didn't like it. And then the 23rd, I went to uh, just behind uh, neighbor, uh, neighbor hospital, you know, presidents are always going there. So, but uh, behind uh, neighbor hospital, about 20 minutes walk, walking distance after yoga, uh, yoga I was taking at NIH with my one of the short term uh, visiting uh, professor, uh, female Japanese visitor. She was also taking yoga with me. So uh, she drove me to the house. She offered uh, the ride to meet that 23rd uh, new home, you know, candidate. And uh, I got there, but my friend was very uh, sort of aggressive. Like a <laughs> <laughs> sort of aggressive, I don't know. Uh, she represented me. And she's the one that, uh, the first talking to the person. Uh, the person was uh, the man, a young man, and in uh, uh, like uh, shorts and then, you know, jogging shoes. And then, you know, he, he just uh, obviously uh, came from the gymnasium. But uh, I couldn't even see because she was blocking me uh, behind the door. And she's the one talk, keep talking. And, and but eventually, <laughs> uh, he, asked if she is a Kiyomi. And she said, oh, no, Kiyomi is here b- behind me, like a boom. And then she opened the door. And then, and then the guy was like, oh, you are Kiyomi. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the first, <laughs> first time I met a husband-to-be Hattrick. He was also uh, working at NIH, cancer researcher uh, from England. I love that. I love that story. I just love it. And, and for the record, I probably if I if that had been me and you, I probably would have been the one blocking the door because I tend to be that way about people I'm protective of. So she's right here. I need to see what's going on behind this door before I let her in. Uh, don't trust you. But in any way, I thought that was so adorable. And I love the way you put that in the book. But uh, then starts your you move into the house. You decide to move into the house and. Uh, Patrick's there, and it is quite the love story after that. Yes, Patrick was a tenant. He was in renting that room in the basement. My room was the second floor, and then it was a full of sun, and then a beautiful oak tree is right next to the window, and then I loved it. And then the owner just painted the wall in, a, you know, like a egg yellow or something like a yolk yellow and it's so cute and I, I loved it and then and but uh, I moved in end of March and then my owner the house owner American uh, MD and then wife was uh, uh, Finnish Finnish from Finland she was educated in the states but she was working in the 
elementary special children's uh, education. So anyhow, they went to Finland uh, summertime, a uh, long vacation because she was a teacher. So they went to Finland about one and a half months they are gone. And at that time, Patrick and I became very close. But uh, behind this situation, Patrick already had known me even before I visited uh, the house. He shared it later on. So basically, he had a very special spiritual ability to see or the dream what's going to happen in the future. And he already knew the Asian woman comes to the house and then she will become his girlfriend and the wife. So that's why he had a little vision already set in his mind. So he was moving toward that goal, I guess. <laughs> he knew it was coming. He knew you were coming. Yes. <laughs> and so you're over time, that relationship, do you feel like this started to, in his premonition, obviously, that you were coming there, was uh, part of your healing and part of your, your growing into who you are right now? Yeah. Yes. So, uh, so he was totally different uh, to me because uh, in my whole life in Japan and up to that point, I was uh, uh, lacking the sense of being loved. So he is the one first, first person really don't hesitate to show me what means to be loved. So I really appreciate it. I loved him and then he loved me too. So he had an unconditional love, very uh, fine-tuned, very kind uh, empathetic person. He never really asked me what happened. And he didn't tell me what happened in his life either. But uh, slowly, you know, uh, from here and there, uh, get to know and then what happened. But we didn't have to discuss what happened and then what is next. But uh, the, in a way, he is slowly introducing me to be being loved. I love that. Oh, wow. That's so phenomenal. And it's that growth and that learning to love yourself and to be accepting of love that led you to, in many ways, and I, I found this absolutely so wonderful, is a reconciliation of sorts, actually, with your father and your family. It came full circle. Um, and it was, oh, it just, let's talk a little bit about that. Eventually, this this love, this person coming into your life, allowed you to open and blossom and embrace. Yes. And then after I moved to state, I have to go through everything from the scratch in a practical sense. And then, but, uh, and then, then Patrick was uh, in my life already. So I had a, some kind of an anchor in my heart, but uh, still I am uh, uh, dealing with practicality day by day. And then, you know, I I have so many challenges as an immigrant woman, you know, so but uh, I I take all of the uh, responsibility and then doing not perfectly, but uh, the, the best in the practical sense. And then I became so 
resilient and a more confident woman. And then so my husband, Patrick Love, and also the, the life in the States changed me, transformed me in, into who I am originally. So I was ready to challenge myself too. So I wanted to change my career because uh, back in, in Japan, number one, I prohibited my career from being regular dentist to kind of like a correct money, you know, the money-oriented private practitioner. That's I try to avoid. So that's why I advanced myself into the basic research to do like, you know, that which brought me to states. That's a wonderful thing. So, but uh, uh, dentistry was always a part of me. And I always loved serving uh, people who has a more challenge, children or elderly. That's how I loved my dental practice. So, and then in the States, I was doing only research. So that felt, you know, I was lacking something, my serving desire, desire to serve people. So, and then early 94, I realized when I was reading the book, Seven Habits of Effective People. I, Stephen Covey. Uh, yeah. By Stephen Covey. Yes, I, I got like a total kind of shock. And I have to change my career to serve people. That's how I felt. So, and it took over one year to even discuss with Patrick and then, you know, seeking the practical uh, terms. And then, but uh, at that moment, we didn't have uh, enough money to carry out our lifestyle. You know, of course, I can borrow, you know, student loan or whatever, but uh, the just a, a half of, uh, you know, income is not good enough. And then I decided to borrow money just for two years while I'm doing the education, dental education. So that's how I felt maybe I can speak with my, my father. You know, that was a total shock to me. That idea itself is the last thing, I, you know, I used to even imagine. But now it come out to my surface of my heart. And then that's how I was already ready to accept the past and my father. And then that shocked me. But uh, that's the beginning of a, like a blossoming the relationship. And then unfortunately, the end of two years, you know, after he sent me the last month of allowance to, for us, you know, I thought that I was just a rent, uh, you know, uh, borrowing money, but he said, uh, basically, he has a terminal illness and he's going to die. And then he left one of the most difficult wishes for the, my family to face. So but, uh, that challenge I took, and then I just wanted to reconcile a whole family with my father, even regardless of this challenge. Right. And to call it a challenge is... Again, in reading the book, I mean, it was <laughs> it was quite the challenge uh, to be asked, basically, if you don't, I will just paraphrase, 
basically to bring your family together. At that point, your dad had uh, remarried someone, but technically couldn't because he was still married to your mom. So it was left upon you then to resolve this situation uh, toward the end of his life while he was actually passing away. And and you did it. You did it in such a profoundly kind and generous way. I I don't know. Well, I'll let you speak about it because but you found it in you to have the resolve to do that. And at the end of the day, it came down to forgiveness. Yes. The things are very complicated because of the, you know, uh, estranged almost decades that father was dying. It was a, you know, difficult situation for the whole family, but he brought the new, most difficult, challenging, uh, task to me. That was, uh, uh, basically asking my mother to divorce to make him available to get married to somebody else, very new person. Uh, the person was like a, came out into his picture just only several months. And then so... Several months before he was diagnosed, right? Yes. So then my father uh, left us when I was still a teenage and then they left for a new woman uh, who has a child with my father. And then that relationship lasted only 10 years. And, but uh, the, he, he has to pay for the, uh, the daughter. You know, he has a you know, daughter with, them, with her. So, and then, but uh, he had a, a, a few times asked my mother to uh, reconcile and then to take him back to home, our house. But uh, my mother uh, rejected uh, a few times. So, so my father was basically, you know, being estranged for two decades uh, before uh, that happens. And then so my, my mother and my two sisters are almost like having a very negative, almost like a hatred toward my, my father. And, but uh, for me, I left the country and I uh, transformed myself in the States and I was earning a happy life. So in a, in a way, my two sisters, my mother, weren't really totally happy because they know father exists in, the, uh, in, the, in Japan, and they, but uh, they, they felt guilty too because they are the one rejecting my father. So, but uh, the, when my father became terminally ill, I had an urge to, to make this, uh, this situation harmonious. But uh, he brought a, a new woman uh, into the picture, and then my mother has to divorce my father. You know, of course, uh, just to think about, you know, whatever my father has as an inheritance, it could be my mother my mother's money, right? <laughs> but uh, now, after two decades of suffering, she has to give up for a new woman who, who was just met several months ago. So, uh, you know, so that task was so big. But, but uh, That's a lot. I have to, yeah, I know, but uh, I have to let my father 
path. No matter what happens with, you know, like a practicality, but that's his wish. I wanted to fulfill his wish. And then toward that goal, I go back and forth with my sisters. And then, but somehow I knew my mother would be very forgiving. So, but eventually we, you know, the last one and a half months before my father passed away, my sisters, my, my mother, everybody、uh, were pretty happy to send my father to the next realm. So, so that was a very fortunate situation. Yeah. That is very fortunate to read. And it also, did you feel like, I just want to know how you felt about it at the end of that kind of that release? Was there, did you feel like the final weight had been lifted with so much? Or I, I just can't imagine, just like something being so, so healed within you. Yes. I, you know, I didn't know、uh, what he, he was really giving to me、uh, back then. But、uh, my father left me a teaching, Buddhist teaching. I think somehow that even like an inference, I wasn't a member yet, but、uh, he left a, a teaching for me to pursue. So, but、uh, I had no doubt I will do it. So, but、uh, anyhow, somehow that magical, you know, mysterious power. Maybe already affecting us all. So I could only see the beginning and the future. Even my father's life is ending, but I felt we have a greater future. And he is part of it. Even he is looking over us. You know, I could believe it. I love that. I love that so much. I just, I, I absolutely love that. And so,、uh, moving forward, your life still had, you still had some things ahead of you that you didn't see coming. And somehow, this healing, this, this rebirth, is, it, is that fair to say? Almost like a rebirth. And you can correct me if that's not how you feel about it, but ended up serving you even more, like you said, in the future, the new life that was、uh, ahead of you、um, when you had to deal with、uh, Patrick's. Diagnosis is illness and eventual passing. Let's talk a little bit about that. So, the,、uh, after my father passed,、uh, basically, Patrick and I decided to move to San Diego so for him to start a new career. I, I was already a pediatric dentist by that time, but my husband, Patrick, was pretty conservative. So he was still working at NIH end of 1997, but, but finally he decided to、uh, take a step forward to work in a pharmaceutical company. So we moved to San Diego. And then so in San Diego, I was already in contact with the,、uh, you know, the Buddhist teaching group. And then I found that A temple, nearest temple was like one and a half hours drive. So, Patrick and I, we both, are,、uh, as a professional, it's very busy life. I, was, I started to work in the Indian reservation as a pediatric dentist. And my husband was working for the、uh, local, San Diego local 
middle-sized pharmaceutical company, and he was、uh, working for、uh, cancer drug research and development. So we both are very busy individuals, but、uh, we drove back and forth to the temple, and then we, we both started work. You know, not just only daily life become like a transforming into the more spiritual life. We even we have a、uh, regardless of、uh, the hectic professional life, but still we are able to even change our lifestyle in a more serene and then、uh, you know meaningful spiritual life. So we had a great relationship. However.、Uh, 2013, June 14th,、uh, he went to MRI because he, he suffered almost for two years of a severe headache. And then I was so concerned about it. And then the, the symptoms become more and more、uh, concerning. And then I set up like an expedited MRI for him. And then、uh, he went there the, after MRI exam, he couldn't even walk. So, 2013, within a month or so, he got diagnosis about metastatic melanoma in the brain. And it started so critical and drastic and then changed our life from the like a top tier to like a bottom of a bottom. I couldn't understand how, how bottom b e c o m e deeper and deeper and deeper as he is、uh, in progress. That was an extremely difficult roller coaster ride all the time. But you managed. Somehow, your spirits, somehow, everything that you'd learned from a little girl, all the armor that you had built up, broke down, and replenished, got you through the other side. And It is something very deeply profound about being with someone at their bedside when they pass away. And I know what that feeling is too. I was, I was at my mom's bedside when she passed away. And it is, as an, and I don't mean that to, you know, at all draw comparison to, to this, but I, I think that was one of the things that was so many things that resonated with me about your story was this and how you are able to get through and have. A profound spiritual experience in the midst of grief and sorrow. All that to say, you still ended up finding meaning through that. How did we get to that? How, how did we get to? I know it's a long process, it's not linear, but making it through to the other side. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yes. I had a very difficult three years. Of、uh, caregiving for him. Original di-、uh, prognosis he had was、uh, a few months. So, but、uh, with、uh, my care and devotion, and also, you know, advancement of medicine, he survived additional three years. But、uh, at the end of three years, I wasn't really sure. Actually, toward the end of、uh, three years, I wasn't really sure I was doing the right thing. He could have been dead a long time ago, particularly his suffering was coming from a brain. And then eventually, the cancer wasn't the one killed him, but the, the, all of the、uh, intervention 
and then radiation therapy and chemotherapy, immunotherapy, all of the, you know, the assault, I could say, assault, assault brain is the one that that liquidated brain. So he lost, he was broken in pieces day by day. And I have to observe that too. That witnessing that, you know, I, I have a great empathy for the people, you know, who has to look, the family member, the uh, loved ones, you know, Alzheimer or the dementia or anything, you know, you know, brain disease do for us. It's so painful to even watch. So, but uh, toward the end of three years, I was almost uh, becoming pieces, but the, after uh, he passed, I noticed basically I have to survive. So I have to drag very old piece of uh, uh, armor, protective armor, wearing, and then get through that very difficult, harsh, critical three years. So that realization came when I was in very deep grief. The first grief, you know, the, as Alicia also experienced. I mean, the first phase is totally, you have no capacity to feel, no receptor to feel. It's totally shut down. Any pain, any, any emotion, nothing is you can even pick up. So that's how, how you progress into the deeper and deeper grief. And in the d- deeper grief, I realized I was uh, pretending I was okay, you know, to the people, even the spiritual group. I was pretending I am okay, but I wasn't okay. As soon as I went back home and then become alone, I was crashing into the pieces and I couldn't find myself how I can put myself together. <laughs> that period of time passed. And then how long I have to keep myself in this miserable duality of life all the time? Why I am pretending? Why I can't be just, you know, showing up as a tearful person? You know, and then I realized the duality I was doing in the childhood. And then, and then when I read one of the articles, the, the uh, teaching, in the teaching publication, it said, just to be yourself as you are. It's okay. You, if you want to cry, cry. You know, that simple passage made me really like almost my t- tear was like a waterfall. And then I felt like a envelope, like an embrace. And then that's the moment I decided to write, like a nine months after my, uh, my husband passing. And then I started to write, and then I, I started to see even the individual childhood, uh, the trauma still unhealed. So that part, I go back and forth, childhood, and then now the grieving, this, you know, death, and all of the stuff, you know, I have to visit so many places in, in the past, and then started to dig. And at the beginning, it, it wasn't really deep enough. It was like, still I was protecting, protecting myself because I wasn't really sure. 
I can go deeper. I was so vulnerable. But uh, then when I realized this may help some other people sometime in the future, and then start to feel maybe I should write for other people, not for myself, and then started to dig even deeper and deeper. And then that part become my uh, spiritual practice. Otherwise, I couldn't dig deeper. So, and then dig, dig deeper, deeper, deeper. And then I thought the, the pile of rubble, but in the rubble, I started to see twinkling, kind of a sparkling light here and there, small, tiny light is kind of almost like evaporating. And I thought, oh my God, you know, I lived my life honestly. And then try to be truthful, as truthful as possible. That light is in me. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> That's the part. That's where I wanted us to get to. That's it. <laughs> you have to keep digging till you get to the light. Ah, oh, you made it to the light. <laughs> and everything just seems to come full circle. You just have to keep digging. Yeah. You know, digging takes uh, your courage and the tear and the blood and the pain. But it's all worth it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's where I wanted us to get to. Oh, wow. I absolutely love it. And, oh, wow. I I could almost just leave it right there. I'm going to give you a moment to, if you have any other Final words for us. I love to give people a chance for a words of wisdom, but this whole conversation have been words of wisdom. But if you had any other, because eventually you did write the book and, and, and you're still doing such good work, uh, still digging to give us the light that you have within you. What else would you like to share with our audience? Some final words of wisdom. Yes. You know, I consider my book is a love story. And then everyone, everyone has a own love story. But the, you have to gather courage to write your own story. You, have a, you are the one creator of your own love story. So that love story needs to be hard. So you have a courage and love in yourself. You can do this. And that is it. I'm going to leave it right there. Thank you so much, Kiyomi. Thank you, Arita. Oh, we're so grateful to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 50 Now What? A special thanks to my guest, Kiyomi. Make sure to pick up A Sky of Infinite Blue wherever books are sold. Make sure to follow us, rate, and share the show. Make sure to follow me on Instagram for continuous updates at 50 Now What Podcast. That's 5-0 Now What Podcast. This podcast was produced by Rainbow Creative with Matthew Jones as senior producer, Stephen Selnick as producer, and Rob Johnson as editor and audio engineer. I love working with this team. To learn more about making a podcast for you or your business, visit them at rainbowcreative.co.